Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul. You can find him in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 6 to 7. Hi, my name's Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. This is episode number 12 in the series titled, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. The topic of today's episode is that of what I call Christian Jedi Mind Tricks. Who I am calling a priest of a false Christian God is anyone within the clergy who is preaching a false gospel or teaching about a Jesus who doesn't quite line up with Scripture. The Jesus they teach is a not-quite-Jesus. How do the priests of false gods get anyone to comply with the requirements of a false gospel when truth is not on their side? One of Adolf Hitler's henchmen and a master of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, said that if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. I can tell you with a high degree of confidence that lies have been told for hundreds and hundreds of years within the church. They often come in the form of traditions that people think were handed down by Jesus himself and in teaching that's been passed down from one generation of theologians to the next that were originally founded in Gnosticism, Manichaeism, and Platonic philosophy. But in addition to repeating deceptive false doctrines over and over, how does one go about manipulating people to do things that are not in line with the truth? In the Star Wars movies, a Jedi mind trick is an ability that allows someone who knows how to use the mystical powers of what's called the Force to influence the thoughts and actions of another person. The irresistible suggestion that the practitioner of the Force makes is always to their advantage. The mind trick is used most effectively on the weak-minded. Those who I'm calling Christian Jedi Masters are priests of false Christian gods who are not experienced in the ways of the Force, but rather they are experienced in the false ways of the faith. They use various Christian Jedi mind tricks to bring about a desired outcome. Guilt and fear are the go-to techniques, but also contained in the bag of tricks is the perceived authority of church leaders, helplessness, loyalty, peer pressure, lust for greatness or power or control, wanting to belong, sad stories, lust for material goods, and pride. All very powerful and persuasive motivators of mortal humans. In God's hands, all these emotions, character qualities, and situations that I just listed can be used as tools to bring about great good. However, when human beings use these things to manipulate people, great evil can come of it. The Holy Spirit speaks to the authentic child of God in many ways. The Bible being the primary and most clear and trustworthy way. Not that the Holy Spirit has degrees of trustworthiness. People do. Some of the strongest internal communication comes in the form of conviction. Conviction is the state of being convinced. When you become convicted about doing something, you've been convinced that it's the right thing to do. Well, there's nothing negative associated with being convicted according to that definition. Conviction, utilized by the Holy Spirit based on authentic truth, is far different than guilt being placed on you by a human being. Being obedient to the Holy Spirit who dwells inside the authentic child of God is something the reborn eternal spirit inside her or him inherently desires to be. Man-made, guilt-driven obedience to a list of rules is a burden that looms over one's head like a dark cloud that constantly threatens to strike you with lightning. Conviction can be a powerful and persuasive motivator, but it feels 
completely different than guilt, fear, or any number of other negative emotionally based motivators. To guard against human imposed manipulation attempted in the name of Jesus, the authentic child of God needs to recognize the difference between the language of the Holy Spirit and Christian Jedi mind tricks. For example, fear implies the loss of courage, and it causes dread and anxiety. Conviction, on the other hand, because you've become convinced that something is the right thing to do, it bolsters courage and can even cause excitement about the future. Guilt is associated with shame, regret, and feeling bad about an action or an attitude. Conviction brings determination and confidence. The most important thing that one can do to avoid Christian Jedi mind tricks is to be familiar with Scripture. Not just familiar in the sense that you know where the book of Micah is in the Bible, but that you understand what the Bible says. That takes time. I'm responsible for what I participate in, in the name of Jesus. When someone is trying to get me to do something in the name of Jesus, or in the name of the church that I'm attending, I need to ask myself, what, what's this effort based on? Why do they want me to participate in this? Scripture? Tradition? Selfish ambition? Someone's personal pride-ridden agenda? Unfortunately, I've learned that even the very basics should be questioned as to their biblical foundations. Things as basic as service and evangelism efforts or church attendance. Things that we believe go hand in glove with following Jesus that have honestly just simply been added on. When someone tries to convince me to give money out of a religious obligation, then I need to turn around and study what the Bible really says about giving. When someone's trying to convince me of how important it is to go to Jamaica with some team to serve there, I need to do an intensive study on doing good works and who my neighbor is. I want to ask myself questions when I see things happening in the name of Jesus. Like, does my small group really need to brainstorm for ideas for a service project in the community? Is it biblical for the pastor to make an open show of giving money to community organizations in the name of the church? There are many things that I may decide I want to participate in, even if support for those things can't be found in the Bible. They're unbiblical. But... I need to think about those things. You know, it may just be the right thing to do, but at least I'll know what importance to place on the activity. Should I place the importance on something as though the Son of God has asked me to do it? Or is it simply the right and moral thing to do according to what C.S. Lewis called the natural law? Or am I just going along to get along with what someone else has convinced me is something that we need to do? Or is it just to make me feel good? I need to analyze myself, be introspective, and figure out my intentions. There's no way of knowing the intention of the heart of those that use Christian Jedi mind tricks. I mean, God knows who's doing that. On one side of the spectrum will be those who are trying to accomplish what appears to them as good. They've got good intentions. But whether what they are trying to accomplish is actually good from God's perspective to accomplish whatever it is, they're using methods that they would have witnessed many others used before them. These are just things that are passed down. Pastors today learn things from the pastors that have went before them, pastors or teachers. These folks are in a state of having good intentions, but unaware that the methods they're using are playing on people's negative emotions and thought processes. All of that to say that they didn't know that they're manipulating people rather than just giving them the, the pure truth to go by. Well, there are also those who believe they're trying to accomplish the Lord's work. They have good motivations, but they're willing to knowingly use the Jedi mind tricks to accomplish it. Their methods are not so good. This is the ends justify the means group. 
This group of people have good intentions as far as the end goal, but are fully aware that they're playing on people's emotions to accomplish that goal. This group may believe that God regularly works through people's negative emotions like guilt and are only doing the Lord's work when they play on such emotions. What matters to them is whether they get what they need to accomplish the mission. What this group does, doesn't realize is that Jesus would never trick anyone into doing anything. This group includes those who are marketing Jesus. They use techniques to get people in the door of the church. And the final group here is, and hopefully it's the most rare, it's those that can only be compared to the snake oil salesmen of days gone by. Those in this category attempt to become rich through a Christian ministry facade by intentionally taking advantage of people's financial hardships, physical ailments, and manipulating their emotions. They're charlatans. According to one televangelist, Peter Popoff, who lives in a gated community in a home valued at around $10 million, all you need to do is drink the miracle spring water that he sends you from a spring located near Chernobyl in the Ukraine, and your problems will all be solved. Oh, and don't forget to send him back the seed faith money in the envelope provided, or the miracle won't work. And maybe it isn't important, but... The Miracle Spring Water is actually from Costco, and not a Ukrainian miracle-working spring. Unfortunately, there are estimates on a good day that Popoff's ministry can bring in up to $600,000. That's just in a day. And this money comes from people who often mark the envelopes that it's the last money that they have, but they're sending it in in faith. This same, quote, faith healing, unquote, televangelist was exposed in the 1980s by charlatan debunker James, the amazing Randy, on The Tonight Show. Mr. Randy showed how hidden earpieces were used to feed the faith healer what seemed to be information that was supposedly coming from God when it was actually Popoff's wife. What you just heard is the actual recording of Popoff's wife speaking to him over a hidden earpiece. Mr. Randy captured the feed to Popoff's earpiece with his radio frequency scanner at one of Popoff's faith healing services. Popoff's wife was working from information taken from cards filled out before the service by some of the attendees. The recording goes on to reveal Popoff's wife giving him such information as names, addresses, and what ailments the person is experiencing, and what it is that they wanted God to do for them. So, as Popoff repeats this information, it makes it appear that he's having prophetic hidden knowledge being revealed to him. Well, soon after Popoff was exposed on The Tonight Show, he went bankrupt. But, here's the good news for you, he's back doing Christian Jedi mind tricks using Costco water that's been poured into little plastic vials labeled Miracle Spring Water. Now, I need to make it very clear that I am very aware that there are very worthwhile ministries that ask for support or participation without any hype, without any wooing or promises. They just simply and quietly make their needs known. There are no Jedi mind tricks ever used. I know of some who are in full-time ministry who I've never heard of ever asking money from anyone. Well, how does that work? Ultimately, it works because they're serving God and he's providing for them. My guess is how the mechanics of that works is that they would serve God with or without money. They'd just figure out a way to make it work. How refreshing of an idea is that? This group of people are either supporting their own ministry by working, like Paul did, they're living off money they previously earned and invested, or they're receiving money from others who believe in the ministry and want to help support them, or a combination of all these things. Really? A ministry that doesn't involve begging and tricks? <laughs> God can provide for someone who serves him like that? Indeed, he can, and he does. Jesus did not come 
to establish a new vocation. Well, why does any of this need to be parsed out? Christians who judge are frowned on. Modern churchgoers are conditioned not to question things that have Jesus' name attached to them. It seems that if one does not want to participate in a ministry that a church has embraced as a group, or more likely the pastor has embraced and the group stands behind it, the acceptable thing to do as a part of this group is to hide (laughs) or come up with an excuse, again, if they don't want to participate in it. However, authentic children of God are not called to be fools or cowards, and they're not called to hide. They're called to guard against deception, to be good stewards with what Jesus has entrusted to them, and to be wise as serpents. Those things require judgment and judging. This really needs to be said and heard, especially by those who have went to countless church services and heard all sorts of messages on giving. And you've never heard this in your, in your message, right? There is no higher authority on earth to decide what to do with what it is that Jesus has entrusted to his servant than that servant he has entrusted it to. She or he will give the accounting of the time, talent, and treasures Jesus has entrusted to them and no one else, not their pastor or the board of elders at their church. They will account for themselves directly to Jesus, their master. Nowhere in the New Testament is there any indication that the authentic child of God is to blindly give their resources to others with the unsighted hope that what they have given will serve a godly purpose. That is church culture talking. Not what I just said, but that is the practice of church culture. Just give your money blindly to the church, and it's as though you have given it to God. And you just trust that those that now hold the money will do something godly with the money. That is completely unbiblical. If the pastor is putting pressure on you to do so, or anybody else, that is anti-biblical. It's using scripture for something that it was not intended to be used for. Jesus expects those who represent him to make wise investments. If you decide to give to a ministry in any way, time, talent, or treasure, you become a part of that ministry and what they are doing in the name of Jesus. If that ministry says that they are representing Christ, but is doing something unbiblical that Jesus would not approve of, that ministry is misrepresenting Christ and using his name in vain. That is nothing that I want to be a part of. And that's why one needs to know and be or be knowledgeable of Scripture and be able to tell the difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and a Christian Jedi mind trick. So, now let's talk about some of the specific Christian Jedi mind tricks. First, trick number one is fear. There's nothing like a good (laughs) fire and brimstone sermon to strike the fear of God into people. (laughs) Psychologists tell us that fear is the most powerful motivator of them all. It's an emotion induced by a perceived threat. Fear can be good. It can keep us alive. It can also cause us to look for a way to be saved from eternal damnation. Nothing wrong with those things. Truly, Fear can motivate one to drop to their knees and ask God for forgiveness. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus himself said that there is a rational fear, the fear of God. Listen to this from Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 5. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Again, fear in the hands of God can be used for good, to cause people to think about their eternal salvation. However, 
Fear is too often used by those who say they represent God to manipulate others for less than godly purposes. Often, the use of fear as a Christian Jedi mind trick is indirect and used to solicit participation in the local church body or agreement with what it is the pastor is saying. As an example, fear can come in the form of a suggestion from the pulpit that if one truly is a Christian, that there are certain behaviors and activities that they'll engage in. For example, a pastor might suggest that you would expect someone who is really a Christian to be serving others and spreading the gospel. You would expect someone who is really a part of the body of Christ to be invested in the lives of others who make up the church body and perhaps financially invested in the church itself. Such statements are designed to subtly and indirectly suggest that if you're not doing any or all of these things, that you should question your salvation. Rather than wrestling with the question of whether or not one is a real Christian, it's far easier to just start doing the things the pastor is talking about. One may conclude they're a legitimate Christian, but still, based on what the pastor is saying, they fear disappointing Jesus, or they comply because they don't want to disappoint the pastor. Let's go on to the next one, the Christian Jedi mind trick of guilt. The sensation of guilt is the emotion someone feels when they think they've done something wrong, like committed a crime or hurt someone or violated a moral standard. However, the feeling of guilt can be utilized as a Christian Jedi mind trick even when one has done nothing wrong. Guilt relies on a partial gospel, which is a false gospel. If you're not basking in the fact that your eternal security rests solely on the work of Jesus and nothing that you can do, you're missing out on a significant portion of the good news of Jesus. It just sounds too good to be true. Well, that is the nature of the real, true good news. That is why it's so good. Life's hard enough without unnecessary guilt being laid on you. That's why it's so important to recognize the difference between human-imposed guilt and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' burden is light, and the yoke or weight on your shoulders that He expects you to bear is easy. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you ever experience something other than a light burden, or easy load regarding what it is you think you're doing on behalf of Jesus, you need to question whose burden it is that you're bearing. This is not to say <laughs> that following Jesus is easy. To bear His name may cost one their past relationships with their family and friends, and it may literally cost them their life. However, the yoke Jesus is referring to at least in part, has to do with what you are doing for Him or on His behalf. His burden may be so light that you're not even aware when He's using you. In his book, Authentic Christianity, Pastor Ray C. Stedman says the following about guilt. When the basis for our Christian activity is dependence on something coming from us, like our personality, our willpower, our gifts, our money, our courage, there is no escape from a sense of guilt, for we can never be certain when we've done enough. Around the world, that basis of performance is driving Christians into the frenetic activity that can result in nothing but sheer exhaustion. My personal experience is that when I'm studying the Bible, I'm like I'm doing research for a book and writing it, 10 hours will go by it will have seemed like only two. I'm typically excited about what I've learned, and I can't wait to get started again the next time. 
little else when I'm doing this seems as worthwhile to spend my time on. I have the same experience when I have opportunities to share with others what I've been learning. I become elated when Jesus uses me in these ways. What a light burden indeed. On the other hand, when I'm watching TV and a commercial comes on that pictures orphan children living on the other side of the globe, I can experience feelings of guilt. Why should I have so much when those children have so little? Surely, I can afford to feed one of them for less than the price of a hazelnut latte that I enjoyed every day, can't I? Well, a study published by the British Journal of Social Psychology concluded that, quote, images which elicit the greatest commitment to give money are those most closely associated with feelings of guilt, sympathy, and pity, unquote. Another study suggests, quote, Images of children were found to be particularly powerful in generating emotional reactions, unquote. The summary of that study went on to say, quote, Images showing negative emotions generated significantly larger monetary donations, unquote. In other words, sad-looking kids bring in more money than happy-looking kids. To think or say that there could not be a purposeful effort to capitalize on this type of research is completely naive. The study itself says, the results, this is a quote, the results are discussed in relation to the construction of charity advertising and opportunities for applying psychology to social marketing and poverty reduction, unquote. The article is titled, Use of Images in Charity Advertising improving donations and compliance rates. Charities that use this type of knowledge are not trying to get your money by simply informing you of a need. They're trying to play on your emotions. They're trying to manipulate you. Besides the natural, visceral response to images of people in need, for Christians, different scriptures or principles start whirling through one's mind. Like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The parable of the good Samaritan and love your neighbor as yourself, just to name a few. They would have you believe that you have six billion what the Bible in the New Testament calls neighbors. This is an effective use of guilt. The advertisers of such charities convince you that you are responsible for all six billion of your neighbors who live on this earth along with you. I have a uh, unfortunate Jedi mind trick story I'd like to pass on to you. I had a friend and a co-worker that I'm going to call Roger. Roger and I were both supervisors in my family's poultry processing business. Roger had several children and a lovely wife. He was an elder in his church. The church he attended expected Roger, as an elder, to attend services on Sunday morning and Sunday and Wednesday evenings. They expected him to lead a Bible study on Thursday evening and host a dinner at his home at least one night a week for different families in the congregation. The elders had a mandatory meeting every other week in the evening. This left Roger with either two or three nights at home each week to be a father and a husband to his family. Missing any of these events was unacceptable in the eyes of the pastor and showed a lack of commitment to Christ and a lack of loyalty to the pastor and the church. Roger would talk to me sometimes about the extreme guilt that would be placed on the elders when they failed to fulfill their role perfectly. As an elder, Roger was also expected to tithe 11% of his income to the church. That was a mandatory requirement for being an elder at that church. 10% because that's what they believed the Bible asked for, and 1% more just to show the faith that the elders had, that God will honor such gestures of commitment. The church leadership expected to see Roger's payroll stubs to hold him accountable. He would do odd jobs on the side to try to keep up with providing for his family. Well, Roger and I had several conversations about how tough this was for him. We also had conversations about how awful it was that employees in the company we worked for would steal things like 
you know, small tools or supplies and products from the company, you know, like they'd stick a package of boneless breasts under their shirt and take it home. Well, as someone in my early 20s, I thought Roger was a good, positive Christian role model to have in my life since he was so committed to doing all of those things that were imposed on him by his pastor and his church. What a shock it was to learn that Roger had embezzled at least $150,000 from the company over a period of about five years. As a result, Roger lost his job, he lost his family, he was criminally prosecuted and found guilty. His church disassociated themselves from him. His life never recovered. And a few years later, he died tragically at a relatively young age. Roger's church effectively used the Christian Jedi mind tricks of guilt, pride, peer pressure, loyalty to the pastor, and perceived authority to get him to act in a way that eventually brought about his demise. This was all done for the church and in the name of Jesus. Sad, because it wasn't the authentic Jesus that demanded any of these things from Roger. If one does something wrong and is culpable, then the feeling of guilt is appropriate. However, experiencing man-made guilt when you've done nothing wrong is a personal choice. How freeing it is when you can see the difference between Jesus' expectations and humans' expectations. You can't serve two different masters, and there is no room for two yokes on your shoulders. You can either take on Jesus' yoke or someone else's. Well, let's look at the next Christian Jedi mind trick. Trick number three, peer pressure. Maybe you remember the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge from a few years back. The ALS Ice Bucket Challenge raised over $100 million as of August of 2014. How many years ago is that now? That's eight years ago now. Wow. The Ice Bucket... I need a new example. The Ice Bucket Challenge is where someone would be dared to raise monetary support for pouring a bucket of ice water on their head publicly or like they recorded themselves on a video. The total amount raised was 3,500% of an increase over the $2.8 million that the ALS Association had raised during the year before. So was the huge increase in giving because people had never previously heard of the charity? No. Is it because people had been looking for a good reason to dump a bucket of ice water on their heads. No. <laughs> Was it because of peer pressure? Well, probably. According to an article ABC News aired on the Ice Bucket Challenge, it said, quote, Peer pressure is a growing part of charity, especially in the age of social media. Unquote. Progressivism is alive and well. In the case of the Ice Bucket Challenge, as successful as it was, the peer pressure to do something that appeared to be an act of good was so great, and people so much wanted to appear to be entering into the righteous cause, that it's estimated that 80% of those that participated in the challenge did not collect or give any money to the cause. This phenomenon has given birth to a new term, slacktivism. <laughs> That's a play on words, slacker, and activism. Anyone who is all about symbolism or appearances like feigning righteousness rather than substance and action is a slacktivist. According to an article by Canada's CBC News, Roseanne Devlin, Vice Dean of Research in the Department of Social Sciences at the University of Ottawa, she said, that's a lot of words, but here's what she said. She said the following regarding giving. Quote, there are a number of empirical studies that suggest individuals do respond to peer pressure. They respond when there is a charitable norm. One U.S. study cited in that article uh, involved a glass bowl in an art gallery containing donations. 
This is what was concluded from that study. Quote, if you start off the glass bowl with $20 bills in it, people tend to give more than if you start off the bowl with coins in it, unquote. Well, knowing that Jesus clearly spoke as though money is on the other side of the spectrum from God, why do churches make such a spectacle out of collecting money on Sunday mornings? Some churches pass bags, so at least the amount of money given won't be known, only those who are giving it. Others pass a plate or a bucket, making it possible for everyone else to see every coin or $100 bill that's being dropped in the offering. Peer pressure studies might suggest that churches, which don't have a money collection ritual, but simply have an offering box located somewhere in the back of the church, will not collect as much money as churches that present a live commercial about the opportunities of giving and perform a song while they pass a plate. I don't believe I'm the only one who fills the eyes of others on me when I pass the bucket by without dropping anything in it. In reality, there may or may not be anybody who's aware of even where the bucket is, let alone watching, but that is the Christian Jedi mind trick of peer pressure working. Peer pressure and the associated Christian Jedi mind trick, pride, were a problem in Jesus' day, enough so that he gave specific instructions regarding how to give. Listen to those instructions. This is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Well, here's another unfortunate story <laughs> about peer pressure, this time in the name of Jesus. The most blatant example of the use of peer pressure in the name of Jesus that I've personally witnessed took place several decades ago now when my wife Angela and I were attending a large church that, due to an aggressive building program, had gotten into significant debt. The lead pastor invited a speaker to talk one Sunday night who not only allegedly had the gift of prophecy, but was conveniently also an expert on personal finances. This guest prophet and financial guru had informed the pastor that God had given him a word for the congregation that was not only going to free the church from debt, but would also heal the financial troubles of hundreds of individuals in the church. It was going to fix the church, and it was going to financially bless those who helped out. Angela and I, like many others, were interested in having our finances healed, so we attended that Sunday night. My parents attended the same church during that time. My dad was friends with the lead pastor. Dad was a business owner. He experienced chronic cash flow issues in his business. Dad was also a firm believer in prosperity teachings. One can expect to get from God when they give to God. That belief was actually a part of his business model. After speaking for a while about the principles of tithing and investing money, the guest speaker informed the congregation that he'd been given a word from God, that present in the congregation that evening were 300 true people of faith. Those true people of faith would each give $1,000 to the church that night. Giving in this way according to the speaker, would be the act of faith necessary to release those that participated from financial bondage. $300,000 was, coincidentally, the amount that the church needed to get out of its immediate debt problem. 
The speaker directed that those who the Holy Spirit had called to give that night to bring their checks and pledge cards forward and lay them on the table at the front of the church. I didn't count exactly how many attended this service, but there were several hundred more people there than required to fulfill this man's prophecy. There was a lot of anticipation in the room to see if the prophecy would come true. Every person that would go forward would represent another thousand dollars being laid on the altar. It took less than 10 seconds for the first person to head down the aisle. As the organ and the piano played softly, soon there was a steady stream of people coming and going to the front of the church. I have to admit, it was exciting to watch. My dad, of course, was one of the true people of faith that went forward. Angela and I felt tremendous pressure to be people of faith also. We were living from paycheck to paycheck, and $1,000 was about all we had in savings. It truly would have been a leap of faith for us to take. We made the painful decision that we needed to just watch the true people of faith fulfill this prophecy. Well, I've always been a little bit of a detail guy when the details interest me. <laughs> I had to count. Based on the initial responses to the speaker's invitation, it looked like this prophecy may have been legit. People proceeded to the altar at quite a clip. 10, 20, 30, 70 people. Then at around 100 or 110 or so people, people stopped going forward. This was despite the speaker laying on a thick layer of Christian Jedi mind trick guilt to help with the waning effect of the Christian Jedi mind trick of peer pressure. Finally, he resorted to the biggest Christian Jedi mind trick of them all, fear. His words were something like this. Those of you that are here tonight who have been called to come forward by the Holy Spirit, you know who you are, and have not yet come forward, are missing an opportunity and acting in disobedience to the Lord. The peer pressure, the guilt, and fear tactics went on for some time before they finally gave up. I checked with my dad a few days later to see if he knew how much had been collected, and I believe he said it was less than half of the $300,000 that this prophecy said would be. The story was that the speaker told the lead pastor that 300 people had been called to give $1,000 each, but that most had been disobedient to the calling of the Holy Spirit. God must hate it when his prophecies don't come true. <laughs> Dad, one of the, quote, true persons of faith, unquote, that went forward that night, eventually sold his business after growing tired of financial losses and worries. He had to continue to work, and he died with he and my mom living on little more than their Social Security income. I guess that prophecy just didn't work for him either. Let's talk about the next one. Christian Jedi mind trick number four, pastoral authority. There comes a time in most parents' lives when they're backed into a corner by a disobedient child who's questioning why they should comply with their parents' wishes. <laughs> Maybe it's because mom or dad doesn't want to take the time to explain their reasons behind their request. Or maybe it's because they want to teach their child a lesson about authority. But the definitive answer finally comes out. Because I'm your parent and I said so. <laughs> it's a sad state when a pastor feels as though they need to rely on the same type of reasoning within their congregation. Yet, where a parent does possess such authority with their children... The only authority a pastor of a church has is when they call attention to Bible scripture that's interpreted according to sound hermeneutical principles and used in the right context. The Bible teaches that local bodies of believers should be led by a group of mature believers called elders, not by a single monarchical pastor or bishop or pope or priest. The elders are to lead by example. Pastor is a functional title. It's not an office. It describes a role. 
it means literally the same as the word shepherd. A shepherd is one who cares for a flock. Depending on the flock size, there may be many shepherds. Answer me this. Do you look out for and care for others and provide guidance for them at times? Well, congratulations. You're a pastor. The same goes for the title preacher. It's a function, something you do according to your God-given abilities. It's not a title denoting authority over others in the congregation. A preacher or pastor is to have no more authority than any other elder in a local church body. Elders have no more status or authority over others in Jesus' eyes than anyone else in the congregation. Elders are all to have the ability to teach. They are to care for and lead the local body by godly example. They are mentors. They are to do so voluntarily and not for any kind of monetary gain, or materialistic gain. Although respect for elders is a biblical principle, rank does not exist. Oversight over a congregation does not imply authority over a congregation. It implies exactly what it sounds like, paying attention to what's going on with the congregation. In a biblical-based gathering of the called-out ones, what most people would call a church, leaders are only leaders because people willingly want to follow them as the leaders act in accord with Scripture and not because there's a divine document that says they must follow them under any circumstances. If a single monarch, a monarchal pastor, is relying on the authority of their office alone to lead a church, they are relying on something they do not have, biblical authority. Instead, they're using a Christian Jedi mind trick to manipulate people. If they're defending false doctrines with their false authority, it's not only sad, it's evil. I have known some wonderful pastors in my life. But what do I do when a pastor sets himself up as a monarch in a church who says he gets his power from God, he teaches false doctrine, and is not willing to entertain the idea that he may be wrong? I leave. He's a priest of a false god. Chances are, a god that's made in the image of that pastor. Well, Jedi mind trick number five, playing on our desire to be well thought of, rich, or comfortable. This is a big one. It's one that gets used a lot by televangelists. But many Sunday morning sermons have also been based on the theology that if we only do something for God, he'll do something for us. Where money's concerned, the principle of reciprocity may be preached. That of, if you give a certain amount, a greater amount will be given back to you. Well, who doesn't want that? <laughs> I once heard a sermon which the pastor played on people's emotions to want to be well thought of when they died. This was supposed to motivate people to live good service-filled lives in which people would say something nice about them at their memorial service. I gotta say, if your motivation for living a moral and service-filled life <laughs> is so you'll be well-spoken of at your funeral, surely when the day of your memorial service arrives, you will receive your reward. But that'll be it. It's Jesus I aim to follow. It's He that I wish to please. It's His burden I wish to carry and His yoke that I wish to share. I trust Him to provide me with that which He thinks that I need. And I trust Him to cause me to be the kind of person that others can tolerate. And it's only Him that I care about what He has to say about me and my life at the end of it. There are many other Christian Jedi mind tricks that are used to manipulate Christians into giving their time, talents, and treasures, and behaving according to a prescribed code. Feelings of helplessness, pride, lust for power or money, and loyalty are only the start of personal feelings that can be used to manipulate people, drag them from the truth, and place heavy burdens on them.
Loyalty to a pastor or teacher who's a friend can absolutely blind a person to the truth. Pride will cause someone to continue in their misbeliefs regardless of who gets hurt. Jesus does not use any of these tricks. He uses the truth. The Holy Spirit is a gentle lover of the soul, not a charlatan. God will turn any form of evil humans have done into good, but those who belong to Him should never knowingly have anything to do with these deceptive tactics of fraud. So, in summary, since God's Holy Spirit will not act on their behalf, the priests of false gods utilize Christian Jedi mind tricks to manipulate their followers. This may be done purposefully or with good intentions, but the results are the same. Followers are left with feelings of guilt, peer pressure, fear, and confusion. These feelings can motivate them to act in the name of Jesus for the wrong reasons. Having now discussed in this and past episodes where false gods come from, how they're individually customized, and the way they're supported through the use of trickery and bad Bible study techniques, in the next episode, I want to start pulling together and looking at ways that false gods are created and maintained in the modern church. We'll look at a false god that I call the Great Saw. That's S for service, A for and, W for works. The Great Saw is the God of service and works. But until then, my prayer and hope for you is that you seek Jesus with all your heart. Not just until you find him, but every day afterwards as you follow him and you get to know him better. May he richly bless your heart for doing so. And Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.